Welcome to the Unmade Podcast, looking at media and marketing from an Australian perspective. I'm Tim Burrows. Recently, I published my first book, Media Unmade. It quickly became an Amazon bestseller. It's the story of Australian media's most disruptive decade. It's published by Hardy Grant, and you can buy it at all good bookshops and online. In the coming weeks, I'll be sharing the full audio edition of the book here on the Unmade podcast. Coming up is the next chapter. Now remember, only Unmade's paying subscribers get to hear every chapter. If you haven't already, you can sign up at unmade.media. As well as supporting my work as an independent journalist, you'll receive exclusive industry analysis in both written and podcast form. And once you sign up, you'll still be able to get our paid podcasts inside the app of your choice. It only takes a couple of clicks. Now, on with the book. Chapter 24. Fake News. In which Facebook is weaponized by Russia to help elect as President of the United States, Donald Trump, who rides a wave of popularity via his lies on Twitter, magnified by media reports, culminating in an attack on the Capitol by deluded conspiracy theorists. Has the rise of social media been a net benefit for society? For a long time, the pluses seemed to outweigh the minuses. Twitter emerged as a wonderful tool to chat with like-minded people about any topic, anywhere, at any time. It was great for journalists and news outlets as both a way of talking to their audiences and as a source of leads, or indeed copy. Facebook became the way to stay in touch with friends and family and, later, to share interesting content. YouTube made what had once been the complex process of video sharing easy. Instagram became a place to present an aspirational, idealised or downright unrealistic snapshot of people's lives. The audience gained a voice in what had once been a one-way conversation. At some point, the social media platforms became so baked into what a modern digital life meant that it was almost impossible to contemplate existence without them. But as we got towards the end of the decade, the calculus changed. Perhaps social media was not so good for us, after all. Individuals began to wonder whether time on social media was well spent. Regulators began to ask whether the digital behemoths had gained too much power. And citizens began to ask whether the digital giants really had created the more open, democratic worlds they had promised. The ledger started to show a net negative. The rise of social media had seemed to herald a new start. The word authenticity was bandied around. But social media also became an engine for the dissemination of fakery and lies. The removal of the role of mainstream media as gatekeeper created opportunities for charlatans 
to seize the agenda instead. In 2014, Facebook had ditched its internal motto of move fast and break things, but inside the company's psyche, that ethos still existed. Publishers were increasing their dependency on Facebook, first as a source of traffic, and second on building an audience on the site itself. In the same way that founder Mark Zuckerberg had prioritised a pivot to mobile in 2012, there would be a pivot to video in 2015. Only this time, most of the pivoting was done by the publishers. Facebook began to prioritise video content in its feeds, urging publishers to get on board. Publishers who had never seen their video audiences stack up on YouTube often saw better metrics on Facebook. It became self-fulfilling as publishers began to support Facebook video and particularly the Facebook Live product, it began to find an audience. The phrase pivot to video had become a cliche in conversations about editorial strategy, but it would also turn out to be based on incorrect data. Facebook would admit in September 2016 that it had been dramatically overstating the average length of video views. When it worked out the average viewing times, it had excluded any video plays that lasted less than three seconds, which appeared to be the majority of them. When Nielsen changed the way it reported video streams in Australia to account for Facebook's changing methodology... Its estimate on the real number of Facebook video streams dropped by 94%, from well above that of Google's YouTube platform to well below. The numbers were more than a matter of ego for video makers. Some publishers had changed strategies away from the written word towards video. It was hard to believe that many of those publishers had not already guessed that something was up but it was not in their interests to ask hard questions about their impressive numbers when they made such a good story for advertisers. A regular pattern would emerge of Facebook metrics being erroneous, seemingly always in the platform's favour. Each time, Facebook offered up a plausible technical explanation. There would be calls for Facebook to be more closely scrutinised, and then the world would move on. Better to do something and ask for forgiveness later. And, as Facebook's impact upon society grew, so did the acts and omissions that it needed to apologise for. The company went from apologising for the way the introduction of its newsfeed had violated the privacy expectations of its audience, to apologising for the false metrics that powered the rise of Facebook video, then to apologising for disrupting the democratic process. It was in 2016 that the questions about Facebook's impact on democracy began to get louder. By then, Facebook was in so many people's lives that it could be used to influence a close vote. This included through narrowly targeted advertising on the platform and by using campaigning Facebook pages. One of the issues with political advertising on Facebook was that it was nearly impossible to monitor from the outside because every user saw something different. First came Brexit. The referendum on whether the UK should leave Europe was a close-run thing. In the vote, 17.4 million people opted to leave, 
and 16.1 million chose to remain, a margin of 51.9% to 48.1%. Afterwards, The Guardian would report that an offshore company had spent a fortune on Facebook ads campaigning for leave. The focus appeared to be on the persuadable 1% of voters who might switch from stay to leave. The company seemed to have the Facebook data to know who to target. The Guardian would also reveal that a series of apparently grassroots pro-Brexit Facebook pages were actually overseen by a lobbying company and promoted with ads financed from an unknown source. Later, the British Parliament's Intelligence and Security Committee investigated whether there had been Russian interference in the vote, which had taken the UK in a destabilising new direction. The committee was unable to come to a firm conclusion. There was no smoking gun, mainly because the UK's government had not seen or sought evidence of successful interference in UK democratic processes, complained the committee. You don't find what you don't look for. But in another vote in 2016, the surprise victory of Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton in the US election, there was a smoking gun. Make that a smoking bazooka. Facebook would later admit that Russia-backed content reached 126 million Americans. There were some 120 Russian-backed pages, which posted 80,000 times. They reached 29 million Facebook users directly, who then shared the divisive posts to a much bigger audience. US intelligence agencies would later state that the disinformation campaign, Project Lacta, was directly ordered by Russia's president, Vladimir Putin. The Russian troll farm pumped out disinformation not just on Facebook, but on Instagram and Twitter too. Much of the anti-Clinton material was retweeted by those in Donald Trump's inner circle. In 2018, there was further evidence that Facebook had been turned into a psychological weapon. It emerged that the company had allowed digital lobbying consultancy Cambridge Analytica to download data on the activities and profiles of millions of users. Along with 70.6 million Facebook users in the US, there were 311,000 affected in Australia. When news broke of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, it was the biggest public relations crisis the company had yet faced. As usual, the company apologised and said it would tighten its procedures. I was among the journalists who joined a carefully controlled press conference call with Zuckerberg. We are an idealistic and optimistic company, Zuckerberg told the dozens or possibly hundreds of journalists on the call. For the first decade, we really focused on all the good that connecting people brings. And as we rolled Facebook out across the world... People everywhere got a powerful new tool for staying connected, for sharing their opinions, for building businesses. But it's clear now that we didn't do enough. We didn't focus enough on preventing abuse and thinking through how people could use these tools to do harm as well. That goes for fake news, foreign interference in elections, hate speech, in addition to developers and data privacy. We didn't take a broad enough view of what our responsibility is, and that was a huge mistake. It was my mistake. 
There was a bright side for Facebook's shareholders, though. Asked whether the furore had affected user behaviour or led to any reduction of support from advertisers, Zuckerberg replied, I don't think there has been any meaningful impact we've observed. Mark Ritson's arse While Facebook and Google may have been the main commercial beneficiaries of the rise of social media, it would also create the new media business model of influencers. The first group of influencers to start making serious money did it via Google's YouTube. They found a wide variety of niches, including game and tech reviewing, pranks, how-to channels, animation, political commentary, comedy and travel blogs. The advertising CPM for YouTubers was not particularly high, maybe $5 per thousand views. But for those who got into it early and posted consistently, it was a decent living if they could stay on top of the algorithm, which rewarded frequent uploads. And as the platform evolved, YouTube loosened its rules to allow those in its partner program to take paid sponsorships and to post affiliate links. Later, Twitch, owned by Amazon, would become the video platform of choice for live streamers and particularly gamers. But the major development of the decade for would-be influencers was Instagram, which began to go mainstream in Australia in 2013, a year after it was bought by Facebook. At the top of the influencer pyramid were glamorous celebrities who used the platform as a means of presenting a sanitised view of an idealised version of themselves. And as they developed large followings, they began to professionalise their output, charging thousands of dollars for a single post, showing themselves using a beauty product or health drink. It was in the influencers' interests for the reported price list to be inflated, but globally, Kylie Jenner, with more than 200 million followers, claimed to charge $1.2 million per post. In Australia, influencers were several rungs down the ladder. Former Married at First Sight contestants promoting HelloFresh delivery food with a more common staple. One of the fascinating aspects of watching the rise of Instagram influencers was seeing the artfully constructed unreality of most shoots. I befriended an Instagram fashion blogger. His feed made it appear that he spent his life on board yachts, flying by private jet and driving performance cars. In truth, everything was borrowed for the shoot. When followers commented, assuming it was his car, or that he really was travelling by private jet, he wouldn't put them right. It was a wild west of marketing. My influencer friend was encouraged by the marketing agency he worked with to use Photoshop to fake analytical numbers around his audience. It was also a simple matter to buy fake followers. Prices started from $100 for 7,500 fake followers. Some followers looked obviously unreal, with little or no activity and no profile image. Other fakes were more sophisticated, with artificial intelligence-generated profile pictures and activities that made them hard to distinguish from real people. It was an odd kind of apparent fame, where much of an influencer's traffic could be robot-based. The motivations for becoming an influencer varied. 
Many just wanted to be able to ask for free food or hotel stays and were making little actual money from it. For the majority, it was pocket money and public validation rather than living. At the lowest levels of the Instagram food chain sat the micro-influencers with smaller followings, but ready to monetize what they had. It was hard to distinguish between those who had a genuine passion and a genuine following and those who had robot followers. There was a disincentive for Instagram to cull the robots when usage numbers were a metric of success for the platform. In 2018, Tasmania-based marketing academic Mark Ritson carried out an experiment. He took a photograph of his backside, ran it through a filter and declared it to be a digital art piece called The Colour of Influence. Then he signed up for the Shoutcart marketplace, which enabled micro-influencers to sell access to their followers. Ritson made contact with 18 of them to see whether they would be willing to endorse his ridiculous piece of artwork. How many of the influencers would lower themselves to that standard, he asked. How many would refuse the commission and prove themselves trustworthy and credible? Would my bottom become a new social media sensation that would propel me to global, arse-driven fame? Of the 18 who responded, 10 took his money and posted the image with no further questions asked. Love this new digital print from at Mark Ritson, enthused one of the Instagrammers, who charged 10 bucks to share it with his purported 44,000 followers. It should be deeply troubling that a marketing medium that positions itself on authenticity and credibility is dominated by influencers who will literally post anything and say anything you ask of them, observed Ritson. Most of all, there is that sticky feeling that the whole influencer marketing thing is just a little bit too underhand, even by the already lower than low standards of contemporary marketing. Is influencer marketing editorial or promotion? Is it advocacy or advertising? Digital marketing or social media? The lines that we have tried to keep distinct for all these decades seem so blurred they disappear almost completely. Perhaps that is the strength of influencer marketing, and also what repels me. The old church and state rules around advertising did not seem to apply either. Many influencers, even those with real followings, being paid by legitimate brands, did not bother to tag paid posts as sponsored content. Followers did not seem to notice or care. The ad or Spons, hashtag, common in the UK and US, rarely appeared in endorsements from Australian influencers. An Australian influencer who did not disclose to their followers they were being paid to promote a product was probably breaking the law. Under the Australian consumer law, businesses cannot mislead or deceive consumers in their advertising or marketing, a spokesperson for the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission told me. This applies to advertising or marketing practices in the media or online, such as on social media platforms or websites. But in practice, the ACCC tended to look the other way, not least because few followers seemed to be concerned about such deceptions. 
I asked whether it was correct that the ACCC had never taken enforcement action against an influencer for failing to declare they had been paid. The ACCC generally receives a low level of complaints regarding advertising by social media influencers. However, we continue to monitor these issues, the spokesperson said. Conspiracy theories. In the US, the presidency of Donald Trump was to be the ultimate collision of old media and new media at the hands of a sociopath for whom the previous rules of engagement did not apply. Nobody came out of it well. Before the 2016 election, Trump emerged from the pack of Republican candidates by being the most newsworthy. Even before he declared himself a candidate, he was promoting a bizarre theory that President Barack Obama was not eligible to serve because he had supposedly been born in Kenya rather than Hawaii. The stunt was a practice run for what was to follow. It was outrageous, contained a racist dog whistle and was widely reported, with Trump invited to defend his position during TV interviews. While Trump's political competitors were spending a fortune on campaign ads, Trump was getting free media. That free media was to be key to Trump's rise. The Fox News cable television channel became his greatest champion and Twitter his greatest mouthpiece. Both helped energise and radicalise the base of Trump's support. The mainstream media found Trump's antics impossible to ignore. Every bomb he threw, usually via Twitter, was widely reported. The amplification effect worked to his benefit. There were few voters left on the fence. The media had evolved in an environment where claims from powerful people were reported and then, if appropriate, rebutted. Trump didn't care about the rebuttal as his radical base was more energised by seeing liberals annoyed than the truth of his activities. Fake news became Trump's regular refrain whenever the mainstream press made revelations about him. And the media that challenged Trump's untruths benefited just as much from the circus. Polarisation was good for business for everybody. Soon after Trump's 2016 election victory... The New York Times, one of Trump's most consistent critics, said the number of new paid subscriptions had soared by 10 times compared to the same period a year before. News network CNN's ratings revived as it put the wild goings-on at the White House at the centre of its programming. Trump knew it too, tweeting in July 2018. The fake news media is going crazy! They are totally unhinged and in many ways, after witnessing firsthand the damage they do to so many innocent and decent people, I enjoy watching. In seven years, when I am no longer in office, their ratings will dry up and they will be gone. Twitter was the platform that really made a deal with the devil. With a single tweet, Trump could instantly reset the day's news agenda. Sometimes that would be the dead cat strategy. If the day's news was covering something negative, he could start an even bigger fight and get them talking about that instead by throwing a dead cat into the middle of the metaphorical table. Trump's untrue claims and abusive attacks 
would have got anybody else thrown off the platform. But Twitter had been a fading force until Trump came along. He kept the platform relevant. Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey, who by then was a part-time boss, simultaneously running payment platform Square, ignored growing internal calls for Trump to be kicked off the platform for his misdemeanours, arguing that it was in the public interest for the behaviour of a country's leader to be visible. There was also something even more insidious taking place below the radar. The human brain has not evolved to cope with a wily algorithm. Anybody who has spent longer than they intended on Facebook felt their blood pressure rise after reading an annoying tweet, watched just one more episode than they intended to on Netflix, or felt the need to put another few bucks into the pokey machine, has been outwitted by an algorithm. It's not a fair fight. 300 generations ago, we were living in caves. The dopamine hit we got from foraging a tasty berry offered an evolutionary advantage. The dopamine hit on finding that somebody liked a social media post does not. The instinct to join a tribe helped mankind reach the top of the food chain. The instinct to take sides created angry, polarised politics. The rise of the weird QAnon conspiracy theory, which radicalised a portion of Trump's following, goes back to the algorithm. Ordinary people gradually detached from reality and seeing the same story amplified again and again began to believe that a satanic cabal of paedophiles was running the US or even the world. Donald Trump was in deep cover to bring the Satanists down, went the wild theory, which started on message board 8chan before leaping to 4chan, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit and other social media sites. Everything that happened during his presidency was part of a bigger plan, according to the messages from Q. The hoaxer, or hoaxers, behind Q claimed to be an official high up within the US government. Thousands of QAnon groups and millions of followers spread on Facebook and Twitter. The YouTube recommendation algorithm would take conspiracy theorists ever deeper with each QAnon theory video they watched, reinforcing the pattern of what YouTube showed them. Throughout 2020, the number of QAnon followers, particularly in the US, exploded, becoming a cult-like element of Trump's support base, connected via social media. In August 2020, Trump, who regularly retweeted QAnon supporters, was asked about the movement during a rare appearance in the White House press briefing room. I don't know much about the movement other than I understand they like me very much, he told reporters. I've heard that it's gaining in popularity. I've heard these are people that love our country. We are saving the world from a radical left philosophy that will destroy this country. As 2020 unfolded, the social media platforms began to take a little more action. Facebook removed 1,500 QAnon groups, while Instagram took down 10,000 accounts. Twitter removed 7,000 QAnon-related profiles, although there were still plenty more to be seen. YouTube was slower to act, with CEO Susan Wojcicki 
labelling QAnon content as borderline. The temperature continued to rise as the US election approached. Before any votes had been cast, Trump made it clear that it was his intention to challenge the validity of the result if he lost. And when he did lose, he again captured the media agenda. Rather than ignoring his claims, the media amplified them, even when they attempted to make clear they were lies. For partisan viewers, it was he said, she said, and Trump's base chose to believe him. Trump's tweeted claims that the election had been stolen became wilder and wilder. We are up big, but they are trying to steal the election. We will never let them do it. Votes cannot be cast after the polls are closed. Twitter continued to allow him to post, but began to add a label to his posts, saying that it was disputed and might be misleading about an election. It was no longer clear whether Trump continued to make the claims entirely cynically, or if he had become so unhinged that he had convinced himself. Either way, that was beside the point. The claims were being reported across social media and mainstream media, as if they were part of a legitimate legal process. It came to a head on the 6th of January 2021, the day Congress was preparing to certify Joe Biden as the next president. Trump whipped a mob into a frenzy ahead of a march on the Capitol building, telling them, if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. What followed were some of the worst hours Western democracy had seen since World War II. The mob, many of them armed and wearing QAnon paraphernalia, stormed the Capitol. Even as some of them beat a policeman who later died, they believed they were on the side of righteousness. They had been so radicalised that they had lost touch with reality, and many of those who took part in the live-streamed attack seemed to have no idea that they were committing crimes that might put them in prison for the rest of their lives. It could have been so much worse than the five lives lost that day. The mob almost got to the politicians inside the Capitol building. One of the rioters was shot by police. Her Twitter account made clear she was a QAnon follower and believed in Trump's tweeted pronouncements about a stolen election. With the National Guard defending the Capitol, Twitter finally suspended Trump's account with just 12 days remaining of his 1,461-day presidency. Twitter deserved no credit. It knew the risks it had been taking. A few days later, James Murdoch weighed in on Fox News from outside the business. The damage is profound. The ransacking of the capital is proof positive that what we thought was dangerous is indeed very, very much so. Those outlets that propagate lies to their audience have unleashed insidious and uncontrollable forces that will be with us for years. At the helm, his brother Lachlan was less conflicted about the part Fox News had played. Asked during an investor call whether it was time to change direction, he replied, Fox News, throughout its entire history, has provided the absolute best news and opinion 
for a market that we believe is firmly centre-right. We don't need to go further right. We don't believe America is further right. And we're obviously not going to pivot left. That was the latest chapter of my narration of my book, Media Unmade. You can buy the book online and at all good bookstores. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, if you want to hear all future chapters, you'll need to be a paying subscriber of Unmade. You can sign up at unmade.media. That's the URL, simply unmade.media. Once you do, it only takes a couple of clicks to add the paid-for feed to the podcast app of your choice. The book was written and recorded in northwest Tasmania on the land of the Palawa people. This podcast is produced with the enthusiastic help of Abe's Audio. For voiceovers and audio production, from corporate to commercial, go to abesaudio.com.au. I'll be back with the next chapter soon. Toodle pip.